Good evening. It's good to see you guys. Let's pray together, okay? Father in heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. And we are here tonight to uh, gather as your children and as your bride and to remember you as we eat um, this bread and drink this juice remember your broken body and your spilled blood. Father, I ask that you would um, speak through me tonight by the power of your Spirit. I pray that you would open our hearts to see your greatness, to enjoy you, to be humbled before you. I pray that you would make much of yourself and that you would make little of me and um, of those of us who are serving I pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things in your word. We know that it is a mine of valuable truth. Um, And we come in here tonight, God, a motley crew, broken, having um, bad days, good days, stressful days, just coming out of um, arguments or maybe a good day of um, seeking you. And wherever we come from, Lord, I pray that you would give us rest in Christ. If there are any here who don't trust in you, I pray that you'd open their hearts. And I pray that you would help us to rest in Jesus, your Son, who died on our behalf. May you be lifted up and may your power be shown to be great tonight in this simple message, Lord. Thank you for your love to us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The gospel is foolish, and it is simple. And you know that if you watch the news and you see the way that um, the gospel is made light of, whether by uh, trained scholars like uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a a, a scientist, a biologist maybe, who makes light of uh, God, calls God a delusion, and has been getting quite a bit of press recently, or Christopher Hitchens, a brilliant philosopher who uses his wisdom to point out that we can't see God, and uh, we've never met Christ, and you can't see the atonement at work, and all, all sorts of people like these men and others are making light of the gospel around us, um, and you know that if you've tried to, to share the gospel um, with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, Um, there is a certain hesitance to to speak the gospel because it's foolishness to the world. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight in the passage that we're going to study from 1 Corinthians 1. Um, And we'll see that, that the foolishness of the gospel in the eyes of the world, the simplicity of the message, is intentional. It's not an accident. God's plan for His Son to die... And for us to trust in Him. And that being a foolish message is is not an accident. God intended for it to be foolish so that He would have the power and so that He would get the glory. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We'll be reading in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, says this. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is writing into a situation where the Corinthian church is divided. They're divided into these little uh, angry groups of people who are each following their own leader. And so you've got, as he says, those who say, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas, Peter. I follow Apollos. Whoever's, whoever they were baptized by, they say, that's my guy. He's my leader. I'm from the church of, of Cephas. And Paul says, that's foolishness. The, the church of Christ is not divided. The church of Christ is just that. It's the church of Christ. We're all united under Christ. And this division has been made known to him by by. Chloe's people, he says, some kind of tattletale, maybe, somebody who's come to him complaining about this problem in the church. And so Paul, Paul is speaking into this divided situation, and here's what he's saying. He's saying these little groups that are, that are being formed, these little divisions among the church, um, they're, they're being formed, probably, it looks like, because uh, these teachers whoever the the different teachers in the church are, are using eloquent wisdom. They're trying to build themselves up. They're they're trying to gain a following for themselves. So whoever it is that's uh, leading this little church of those who are baptized by by Apollos, they're, they're trying to gain a following, and they're trying to pull them away from Paul and pull them away from the rest of the church. And so it's into this divided situation that Paul speaks. He says, it's not about how many people you baptize. It's not about uh, who is the most eloquent or who has the best, the best lectures, who's able to gain the largest crowds. He says, in fact, it's the very opposite. It's the very opposite. We're not trying to create fame. We're not trying to create popularity. He says, my message is the exact opposite. It's a message of simplicity. It's a message even of foolishness. I avoid, I avoid eloquence and wisdom intentionally because I think it could detract from God's gospel, from his good news. So Paul says, this eloquent wisdom must be avoided. It should be avoided intentionally because it distracts from God's power. But before we go on, let's, let's look at three questions that need to be answered Specifically, in these last three verses, let me read verse 17 and following again. And uh, let me tell you the three questions. What is the gospel? 
that Paul mentions in verse 17. What is the power of the gospel? And third, how is the power of the gospel potentially lost? Read with me again. In verse 17 it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the first question, what is the gospel? He says the gospel is the message of the cross of Christ. The gospel is the message of the cross of Christ. In verse 17 it says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, to proclaim the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, unless or lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The message is about the cross of Christ. And we see that confirmed in verse 18 where he says, the word of the cross is foolishness. The word of the cross, that's what he calls the gospel. He sums it up like this. You want to know what my message is? It's a message about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's his summary. So what is the gospel? It's a message about the cross. Second question, what is the power of the gospel? What is the power of the gospel? Look at verse 18. It says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The the message of the cross is the power of God to save. It's the power of God to save. How does it save? As Jesus said in Mark 10, He said, the Son of Man Himself, speaking of Himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. He says in the Gospel of John, for this purpose I've come. I've come to die. Jesus came to die and His death is a ransom. His his entire purpose was to make a ransom so that God would be glorified and His people would be restored to Him. So what is the power of the Gospel? What is the power of the message of the cross? It's that Jesus died as a payment for our sins. We are all born into God's world. We're God's creations. He owns us. And that's why it says that in all of us there is the image of God. God delights in, his, in, in all of His people. Even in people who reject Him. He, there is something of value, it says. Um, God says He doesn't delight in the death of a wicked person in Ezekiel. And it says, whoever sheds anyone else's blood, their blood will be shed because the image of God is in that person. God created us and we are His. And because we live in His world and we are part of His, his ownership, we owe Him a, a duty We're His citizens. And just like citizens owe their their king or their sovereign a certain duty, we owe God thankfulness. We owe Him uh, obedience. Because we live in His world and we break His laws daily because because we are naturally sinful. And because we, we live in this world and instead of overflowing with thankfulness about everything, we grumble and we complain and we resent our circumstances, we all stand condemned before God. We are disobedient. We've broken His law. We've been ungrateful children and citizens. So God's just judgment stands against us. The law says, whoever disobeys God must die. 
But Jesus comes and he stands in as a sacrifice. The entire, one of the, the main points of the Old Testament system is that all the sacrifices point forward to a better sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us. And that better sacrifice is the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice he calls a ransom. A ransom dying in our place so that we could be freed. So that we could be freed from punishment, freed from discipline that we've earned, and restored to God as his children. Completely accepted and loved by God. That's the message of the cross. That's why it's called gospel, good news. It is good news that you don't have to work to be restored. There's not a series of steps or, or a hierarchy that you have to ascend in order to be restored to God. But Jesus has done it. So the message of the cross is power. It's power because it's all there is. There are no works, Paul says. It's not, it's not a, a, a message about works. It's a message about faith, about trusting in Christ. And so the gospel is a message of power because it's a message about the cross and about Jesus saving us. So what is the power of the cross? What is the power, excuse me, of the gospel? The power of the gospel is God's power to save us through His Son. And the third question, how is the power of the gospel lost? Or to put it in the language of verse 17, how does eloquent wisdom destroy the power of the gospel? And Paul answers, uh, eloquent wisdom destroys the power of the gospel because it removes God's power and it puts us in, that, in the place of power. It puts us in the place of importance. It makes us sound like we're the ones who are doing the saving. Let me explain. Like I said, there were these little groups that are forming. And so these, these teachers that are gathering groups to themselves are saying, we are the ones who are leading. And they're, they're inserting, instead of a message about the cross, whatever message they want, something else. Call it gospel plus. Because it's anything beyond the cross. That's what Paul's saying. If you replace the cross with anything else, with whether it's wise-sounding teaching, lectures to gather people to yourself, a message that maybe includes Jesus, but also adds something else to it, so that you, the teacher, look like the great person, look like the guy who's persuading and who's creating this group, then you are destroying the power of the gospel because you're making yourself into the hero. You're making yourself into the central figure. And Christ and the cross must be central to the gospel. It cannot be at the end of the day someone saying, so-and-so won me over by their persuasive speech. This, this person won me over because they were able to convince me about the great benefits of this and about you know, how this, this new group will function in these ways and, and all these things that we can do. Paul says, no, it has to be the power of the cross. And if you add to that, then you've destroyed it. You have, you have emptied the cross of its power. So how is the message of the gospel, how is the power of the message of the gospel lost? It's lost because something else distracts from the cross. These teachers don't want to look like fools. They don't want to look like fools. And they know that if you preach the message of the gospel, you get laughed out of the synagogues. You get laughed out of the, the Areopagus where Paul was in Acts 17 that he got mocked out of. 
You'll get laughed out of these places because, because the message is so foolish. It's so simple. So Paul says, don't, don't replace the message of the cross with your own wisdom, with something that makes you sound better, look less foolish. Gospel plus. And that's why he says in verse 19, he says, it is written, he quotes from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God wants to overturn our own trust in ourselves. He wants us to to not trust in ourselves, to take our, our trust away from ourselves and our hope away from a hope in ourselves so that we put our hope in Him. And we say, I know that I'm probably going to lose friends over this. And in the first century, I know I may lose family members and even my own life. Or in North Africa, I may lose my life for this message, for those who are converted there in Muslim lands or in other lands where the gospel is, is silenced politically. But, despite the fact that you'll look foolish, I want you not to put your trust in yourself. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says. I don't want you to have that hope in yourself. The hope that you can look wise in the eyes of the world. You have to become a fool by joining yourself to Jesus Christ, to the message of the cross. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's the message of the cross. And this is how it's always been throughout all of God's plan. Consider, for instance, Gideon's army. Maybe you know this story. In Judges chapters 6 and 7, we, we read about a guy named Gideon. The, the nation of Israel is without leadership. God raises up leaders. One of those is Gideon. Gideon is kind of a mousy fellow. Um, we meet Gideon in Judges 6, and he's hiding in an indention in the ground, a wine press, uh, threshing the wheat, because he's afraid that the enemies are going to see him. So he's not exactly uh, Samson. Um, and God comes to this guy, this Gideon, and um, he appears to him, and he says, Gideon, you're going to become a, a, a hero to save my people, to, to, to lead my people um, out of oppression to the Midianites, their enemies who were oppressing them. So the Midianites in chapter 7 surround Israel. And God says, he has Gideon uh, gather an army. Gideon gathers an army of 30,000. And God says, mm, this army is a little too big. Which is certainly the first time in history that that's been said. Um, and so God whittles down the army. He says, have the guys who are afraid go home. We don't need them. And then he takes the remnant, about 10,000, to the stream. And he says, we're going to divide them more until only 300 men are left. And those 300, those 300 then, God tells Gideon, Gideon, I want you to surround the army of the Midianites. And put a, put a, a, a uh, jar over your torch. Each man should have a torch. Put a jar over his torch and take a trumpet with him. And they go down in the middle of the night. They surround Midian while, while the army's sleeping. And they take the, the jar off the torch. And they blow the trumpets. And there's confusion in Midian, and the people disperse and are all killed. They all fall by the sword, either of, of the Israelites or of others who come and pursue them. And God triumphs over the, over the Midianites through a force of 300 versus tens of thousands. 
What's the point of the story? The point of the story is this. God says at the very beginning, Judges 7-2, before he's leading Gideon out, Judges 7-2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God wants no boasting in self. No boasting in their own power. And so he makes it absolutely clear, this did not happen by your own wisdom. This did not happen by your own power. I overturned the Midianites, and I made sure that you knew it, because it's not your power at work. It's not your big army. It's not your wise planning. It's my power. I overturned them through a plan that's frankly foolish. Because God's power is shown when he saves. Another story to consider, a a negative example from the life of Hezekiah, one of the kings of Israel. In Isaiah 39, we read uh, that Hezekiah showed the wealth of Israel to envoys from Babylon who had come to visit. Um, They had come to give Hezekiah a message congratulating him that he had been healed from this sickness. And Hezekiah, in his pride, takes these messengers from Babylon in, and he shows them the entire treasury. He says, yeah, we are pretty good. You know, take a look at what we've got. And he, he takes them in, and, and, uh, and the prophet comes to, to Hezekiah. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and he says, what did you say to those men? Says, I, I just you know, showed them everything that we have. And Isaiah says, for this offense, the nation of Israel will be destroyed and dispersed. Why? In 2 Chronicles 32, we read that it's because of Hezekiah's pride. Hezekiah trusted in himself. He trusted in the wealth of Israel. I can show the entire wealth of Israel to to Babylon. Look how great we are, Babylon. But God wants the power to be his own. He wants He wants Babylon to realize that the reason Israel succeeds is not because of wealth. It's not because they have a great treasury. It's because God is with them. God healed Hezekiah. And he should have known that. So God overturns them because of of pride. And he does destroy the nation. God doesn't want Hezekiah to think that his wealth and his power are the key to his success. And finally, we read about the example of the church right here. In 1 Corinthians, look at uh, verse 26. Skip down to 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." 
This is not exactly the kind of letter that you want to write to a church that already hates your guts. Um, you know, uh, look at yourselves. You're a bunch of dropouts, losers. You know, you're the, you're the worst of the worst. You're the very dredges of society. He says, consider your calling. <laughs> it's not like God called you because you're so, so fantastic. You're so popular and successful. You know, you're at the, the top of society. He says, consider, church, why did God choose you? He chose you to shame the world because you, Corinthians, and us, Desert Springs, are not the best of the best. We're needy people. We come to God with open hands because we are messed up. Be honest, right? Be honest. If we knew each other's lives, we'd be somewhat revolted. Right? You would if you knew mine. I can tell you that much. We are not the best. And God chooses us for that reason. Because we are, in some sense, losers. God chooses the losers to shame the winners. Because the winners trust in themselves. God wants no human flesh to boast before him. So how does this connect to the Lord's Supper? Turn to to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper in this passage. And he recounts the tradition that he's received about the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23... He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Did you hear that last part? When you drink the cup, and when you eat the bread, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. That's completely, uh, that's almost exactly equal to the words He uses in chapter 1 to describe the the. the preaching of the gospel. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. It's the word of the cross, the message of the cross. So the connection here is that the Lord's Supper, because it's a proclamation of Jesus' death, is also a simple message, an intentionally simple act. The Lord's Supper um, involves the most basic foods, right? Bread and, and juice, wine, whatever it may be. The ceremony symbolizes even, get this, a gruesome death. In the first century, Christians were accused of cannibalism because they would, they would, behind closed doors, do the Lord's Supper, and those on the outside heard them talking about eating the blood, uh, excuse me, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And so the Christians were accused of being cannibals. What is it that they're talking about? That's disgusting. And so... The Lord's Supper has always been a simple ceremony. It's always been somewhat 
connected with revolting things. Jesus, as he was was talking and using a similar analogy in front of the Jews in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, turned off the majority of his followers who said, this is a hard message. Who can hear this message about eating the flesh and drinking the blood? But it's intentionally hard. It's intentionally simple. So that the glory all goes to God. It is a proclamation of the death of Christ. And the purpose of this supper is so that there is absolutely no confusion. The supper points back to the cross. There are no questions here. And God wants it to be obvious like this. God wants us to remember that He deserves all things. He wants the recognition. And so He strips away the big armies. And He takes away the wealth. He takes away uh, the the eloquence and the wisdom. He takes away any opportunity to, to make much of yourself. And He gives us a simple message and a simple meal. But they, they are powerful because of the message that's behind them. Because of the cross that's behind them. There's nothing left. So that no one can say, I did it. And boast in themselves. But so that everyone is forced to say, God did it. God did it. And look to God. And that's what's going on here at the Lord's Supper. We're just repeating this promise back. We're repeating it to ourselves. This, this story is told of Martin Luther that one time he was confronted by some of his, uh, the congregants in his church and they said, Dr. Luther, every week we come in here and all you ever do is preach the gospel to us. You know, like, what's up with that? Why do you do that? And he said, every week you come in here and you live like you don't believe the gospel. So I'm going to keep preaching the gospel until we believe it perfectly which of course is never. And that's the same reason that we do the Lord's Supper. We come in here all the time, every month, looking at ourselves and realizing that we're needy. We should come in here with that attitude. We shouldn't come in here thinking that we're capable. We shouldn't come in here with any boast in ourselves. We should come in here completely empty-handed. And in fact... If you're honest, I know this can be a little depressing. It can be depressing to to look back on the last month and think, I can't believe I'm still struggling with this. And if you take the big picture, you know, something that you've been struggling with for years, you know, how is it that I can still be, be struggling with this? And that's why we need the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, that the sacrifice of Christ is complete. It is complete. There is no other need. It is not gospel plus. Whether that gospel plus is wisdom and eloquence of a certain teacher, or that gospel plus is you coming saying, God, I did better this month. I did better this month. And so, you know, I think I'm worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that the the body of Christ was broken. Consider the metaphor, right? Tear You tear a piece of bread off, just like Christ's body was torn. Consider that. Consider the death. Why do we drink wine or juice? Because it's red. It looks like blood. It's a reminder to us of the blood that was spilled for us, 
of the death of Christ. It's a simple message. And it's a humbling message so that it points away from us and back to God and back to the power of the cross. So, as Paul ends this passage in 1 Corinthians, let's remember as we take the Lord's Supper, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord and in what He's done for us. You already know what's, what's up here. The bread and the wine. And I already read for you this passage out of 1 Corinthians um, where Paul says, uh, this is the tradition that we've received. This is why we drink the, the cup and this is why we eat the bread. But um, this, is, this is something specifically for Christians to do. Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 11, just listen to this. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse, when they come for Lord's Supper. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions, and I believe it, for there must be factions. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating one goes ahead uh, with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses? To, uh, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Skip down to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul says specifically, those who come who take the Lord's Supper not as Christians, but in an unworthy manner, are are actually drinking judgment upon themselves. Eating and drinking judgment upon themselves, he says. So this, he says, is a meal for Christians. It's a meal to remind us. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I encourage you, don't eat and don't drink. Just stay where you are. It won't be weird. We totally understand. And it's, it's a good reminder just to see what, what it is that we believe and what it is, that, what the message is um, that we proclaim to ourselves and to each other. Um, as we go into this time, I want you to examine yourselves. And as Ryan's always so good to remind us, find yourself needy. Not, not perfect, not with something that you can bring, but needy before God. Recognize your need. But come as a Christian and come thoughtfully. Um, will you just bow in silence and uh, consider that as I, uh, as I pray for us here? Father, we come to you needy. And we come to you uh, dirty and uh, with lives that show our need for you, that show our sin. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to consider the body, uh, to consider that, that you have put before us the, the, a reminder of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Thank you for your love to us, that you would call us to yourself, that you would lovingly sacrifice your only son for us, your beloved son. 
Lord, I pray that you would lead us now in trusting you more as we uh, eat this bread and, and drink the, the juice that we would remember the body that's broken and the blood that was shed for us and that we would trust in Christ. Thank you for your great love to us, Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son who brings us to you. Amen.